Welcome to the fucking show. And sorry, I know you guys wanted to clap, but everything I'm going to say is going to be amazing. Uh, how do you pay, man? Uh, if you don't write checks, how do you pay these guys? Great cash, homie. Mama, there goes that man. Hello and welcome to episode 81 of Carson Sack Podcast, where we talk balls. On this week's episode, we have a mail sack, and we are going to look at and break down the two conference championship games in the NFL. At the very end, I'm going to give you a few little thoughts on a couple NFL stories, mainly Dwayne Haskins signs with the Pittsburgh Steelers today, and I am... Cautiously optimistic, cautiously loving Dan Campbell, the new hire for the Detroit Lions as head coach. Going to talk about that and then also going to talk about part two of the HBO Tiger Woods documentary and share my thoughts on that as well. Before we get into that, I do need to remind you all about Thrive Fantasy Sports. When you sign up with Thrive Fantasy Sports, you can go to their website or the App Store or the Google Play Store or any store like that. Go ahead and sign up, and when you use my code SAC, all capitals, S-A-C-K, you get an instant match of your deposit, $20 or more. So... You go, you sign up, S-A-C-K, when you deposit, you deposit $20 or more. Thrive Fantasy is going to match that deposit for you. They've got great stuff for PGA, uh, the conference championship in the NFL weekend. They've got some good props for that. NBA is in full swing. Lots of different plays and options. UFC this weekend, the Conor McGregor fight. Tons of different ways you can play and win. So check out Thrive Fantasy Sports and use my promo code SAC, all capitals, S-A-C-K. Then, again, not to get ad heavy, but before we get into the mail sack, I do need to remind you all to like, rate, review, and subscribe, preferably on the, uh, the iTunes, the podcast, Apple app. If you do not do that there, that's totally fine. If you want to do it um, anywhere else, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcast from, that helps me out immensely, and it is greatly, greatly appreciated. So now let's get into the mail sack. The first question on this week's mail sack comes from Trent Revelet, who asks, Give me your top three favorite cocktails, please. Number one, when I'm out at the bar or when I'm just making a drink for myself if I'm at a buddy's house, my number one go-to is a vodka Sprite with a lime. I'm a big vodka guy. A lot of these drinks are going to incorporate vodka. I just think it tastes better than bourbon and whiskey and all these other type of things. And I just think the Sprite and the lime just complement it perfectly. So my number one drink, that cocktail that I am bound to order if I'm have a night out is the vodka sprite with lime. My number two is a transfusion. Have recently come across this within the last year and a half. It is vodka, um, ginger ale, grape juice, and if you want to get fancy, you can do a little spritz of lime. I prefer it with a lime, but if you don't, it's totally fine. Uh, very popular golf drink on 
the course. That's where I've mostly enjoyed them. Uh, Louisville Country Club has a fantastic one. It was quite big in North Carolina at the golf courses I visited there. They were on the menus everywhere. I highly advise it. It's a good summer drink. Not really a wintry type one, but you could bet your ass come this summer, I'm going to be having a few of those on the course and then uh, in my everyday life. My third is actually a toss-up. I want to say 3A and 3B just because I do enjoy these drinks very much and about equally the same. I don't get it a lot because it is so sugary and sweet, but a sex on the beach is just delightful. Um, You can never go wrong with one of those. Yes, one might be, you could say, a little too sweet or too fruity, but it's never going to taste bad, and that's that's what I'm looking for when I'm ordering and enjoying a cocktail. It's just something that I can, old reliable, something I can enjoy and sip on and have a good time. And I mean, you drink enough of them, they sneak up on you. Um, my 3B is going to be a White Russian. Uh, if you've ever seen The Big Lebowski, you definitely understand that. But again, another solid Kahlua and vodka drink that I think tastes like adult chocolate milk. Very delicious. Those would be my top three, or if you're going to be a stickler, four cocktails that I will order, enjoy, and if you told me I could only drink those cocktails for the rest of my life, I think I'd be uh, pretty content with that. The next question comes from Marion Moore, who asks, Did we watch Drew Brees' last game of his career? And if so, does Winston or Taysom take over? So after the game on Sunday between... The Buccaneers and the Saints, Drew Brees leaving the field in defeat, took one last final look at the Superdome, which everybody was really trying to say this is going to be his last game. And there were rumors throughout the regular season and the playoffs once he came back from injury that, hey, this was going to be his last year. Then we, after this game, the week progresses on we get reports from his wife that drew was not only dealing with the rib injury but was also dealing with a shoulder injury and a multitude of other things i think if those injuries are legitimate and i i don't know if the wife would have just she probably would not have made those things up if she did to try and save face and be like hey this is why he was kind of playing like shit like then I could see there might be some issues with that. What I, if Drew Brees actually was that hurt and he could get a full offseason to rehab and fully recover and come back fresh for next year and just not suck, if he could look as good as he did two years ago where there were still some questions about him where He wasn't throwing the ball as far down the field. He was struggling with some accuracy, but he was still very good and was capable, a lot of people said, to take them and win a Super Bowl before they ended up losing to the Vikings in the playoffs two years ago. If he can get a full offseason to rehab and everything and get right and sort of have this last hurrah and go out, he doesn't need to win a Super Bowl to go out on top, but I think it's really going to be hard for him to justify that being his last game this past Sunday where he looked pretty bad. A uh, couple turnovers just was not not the Drew Brees that everybody comes to expect. Obviously, with age, you can't stay at the peak like players do. Like No one's expecting him to be prime Drew Brees, but I think it's going to eat at him a lot. 
um, over this offseason that if he feels good and he feels that his injuries are taken care of and he's healthier, then I do think he's going to come back. So I think actually we have one more year of Drew Brees, and I think if anything, he needs to play the card where it's, hey, this he needs to tell the team, the coaches, hey, this is my last year. If he wants to make it public, sure, go ahead. But sort of the Ray Lewis, Ed Reed situation, the Peyton Manning situation where everybody knows it's your last year and obviously each team's goal is to win the Super Bowl, but added that extra motivation of everybody knowing it's going to be his last year. If, in fact, it is Drew Brees' last year, um, this was it. I think Taysom Hill is probably going to be the guy just because I think Sean Payton enjoys him a lot more than he does Jameis Winston. Obviously, we saw when Drew Brees went out this year with the rib injury that Taysom was the guy that got to come in and be the starter. Personally, I would rather have Jameis than Taysom. You can live with some of the interceptions and the turnovers Jameis has because if the Saints were to keep that defense intact, I think Jameis is going to be capable of putting up enough points with how good that defense plays to win a good amount of games. I don't know if you win a Super Bowl with Jameis just because those turnovers are going to bite you at some point. I could even see the Saints being a player for a quarterback in the draft If there's a guy there that they like at the right time, I could see them, even in free agency, if there's a guy that they like there, going out and signing them. Because I think Sean Payton, again, feels comfortable with Taysom. I think deep down knows he's got a better chance to win with Jameis, but I don't think he himself thinks, hey, I'm going to win a Super Bowl with either of those guys. So hopefully that answers your question, Ryan. Moving on. The next set of questions we have, the first one comes from Paul Marino who asks, what will happen to my goof next season? I hear a trade for Watson, maybe. She, once again, it's not fucking funny, Polly. I'm so over it. But is referring to Jared Goff. After the Rams lose to the Packers last week, the sentiment in the post-game interviews by Sean McVay when asked, is Jared Goff this team's quarterback going forward? He was very non-committal. Um, you look at Jared Goff's contract, that's going to be a lot to unload. He's guaranteed over a hundred million dollars. If they were to trade him and they got the trade to the Texans, obviously I think that's doable because you're getting rid of Deshaun's contract, but taking on Jared Goff's, who is going to make a little bit less, I believe, than what Watson is. Ultimately, I do not think that the Rams are in play for Deshaun Watson. A lot of names, uh, the teams that you're hearing is, first and foremost, are the Jets, which I think they have the most to give up, if we're being honest, to get um, Deshaun Watson. But it'll be interesting to see with their new head coach how he feels about Sam Darnold, how he feels about the second pick, what he wants to do, and build his team going forward. If I was Jared Goff, I would feel pretty upset But if I'm being realistic with myself, I understand I've regressed the last two years from what I was since I went and took my team to the Super Bowl. I'm not saying Jared Goff is done in the NFL, and I'm not saying he's washed up or not good. Obviously, he has the talent, and I think he has the coach to do it. It's just himself getting healthy this offseason, working on his thumb and his hand, 
getting healthy, working on mechanics, better decision-making, quicker decision-making, so when he comes back, hopefully as the Rams quarterback, that he can return to form of that Super Bowl season and be a productive NFL starter, rather than what he has been the last two years where it's sort of been middle of the road. Next two questions come from Mike Bennett. Mike, we always appreciate you sending in questions. Thank you. He asks, should Will Urban Meyer draft Justin Fields over Trevor Lawrence? I I don't think he's going to draft Justin Fields over Trevor Lawrence. I think that would be a real homer pick. I think with how Trevor Lawrence is regarded as this you-can't-miss prospect, like everybody pretty much pegs him to be a starting NFL quarterback and a potential star in years to come in the NFL, then I don't think he's even that big of an Ohio State homer to go and take Justin Fields over Trevor Lawrence. What I've seen a lot, um, speaking about the Urban Meyer hire, what I've seen a lot of criticism for Urban Meyer and the Jaguars hiring him is, is his college offense going to translate to the NFL? If you go and you look at Urban Meyer, he has done an exceptional job of fitting his offensive scheme to what his quarterback does. You go back and you look at his first national championship year with Florida when he had Leak and he had Tebow. Those two guys ran two entirely different systems the same year on the same team in the same games when they would play. Then you go and you look at when Tebow took over for Leak and how that became really a running quarterback system, power quarterback draw, things like that. Then you look at when he gets to Ohio State and he's got Braxton Miller, he's got JT Barrett, who obviously run the ball a little bit more but can still throw the ball and be effective in that. After JT Barrett leaves, Dwayne Hassan comes in and isn't as mobile at the end of the year around the Maryland game that year they really started to use Dwayne in the running game and it opened up things a lot but primarily Dwayne was throwing the ball all over he had 50 I believe it was 50 total touchdowns and either 43 on the ground or 50 through the excuse me 43 passing touchdowns and seven on the ground or I think he threw for 50 touchdowns and had seven rushing touchdowns it was Urban's very good about scheming and designing a system for his quarterback. If you want to look at the skill sets of Fields and Lawrence, they're sort of the same. I think at this moment, Lawrence is the better quarterback than Fields, but maybe long-term if Fields can develop um, using his mobility a little bit more to extend plays and his timing a little bit, knowing when to throw the ball away, he can develop and be a guy because his arm strength and his decision-making of reading the field and progressions and things like that is top-notch. Lawrence, on the other hand, his mobility, very good. Just like Justin Fields where they run around, he's very good about extending plays. I'm not sure he has... A totally as strong an arm as Justin Fields, but to answer your question, Mike, no. Urban Meyer's not a big enough Ohio State homer to go and take Justin Fields over Trevor Lawrence. Next 
Mike Bennett follows it up with, Will Crumb be a cool teacher or a stickler? So our good friend, our roommate from high school, uh, not from high school, from college, Andrew Crumb is studying to be a teacher. If I remember correctly, it's going to be an English teacher. My biggest fear for Crumb, who does rapping as well i've played a song of his as an outro song on this podcast before wonderful artist check him out on spotify andrew crumb my biggest fear for crumb is you've probably seen it in movies or seen it like talked about but when a teacher goes to an inner city school they try and relate and they say hey today's rap is pretty cool you know who was a really great rapper William Shakespeare, and then they do little bits and shit like that. I hope Crumb does not do anything like that. A stickler, I don't... I've very rarely seen Andrew Crumb mad, but when he does get mad, Jesus Christ. It is a sight to see. I think it honestly all depends on the age group he decides to teach. From what I understand, I Last time I talked to him about this, he wants to do sort of older guys. And I don't think that that's going to be Crumb style to be this stickler or anything like that. So I think he'll probably be a cool one. Maybe be like a Coach Frank the first one to two years at St. X. Hopefully he doesn't develop into a meaner guy like Coach Frank did later on at St. X. If any of my fellow uh, St. X Tigers, class of 1-5, say it with me now, um, remembers that little transformation. But Coach Frank, not trying to talk shit, great guy, like him, great teacher to me. But no, I think Crumb's going to be a great teacher, and I think he's going to err more on the cool, nice guy friend teacher rather than the stickler teacher. Our next question comes from Brandon Blazer, who asks, What are your thoughts on the Lindor trade? I fucking hate it, Brandon. I 100% understand that. Well, I don't understand. The Cleveland Indians organization and front office, they're not poor, and I absolutely hate that they act like they are. They're probably, they probably could have signed him. If they wanted to, and they gave it a little bit more time and working. I understand Lindor wanted a whole lot, but he's worth a whole lot. And they should have ponied up and paid him and have Shane Bieber, Jose Ramirez, and Francisco Lindor be that team's and that organization's three centerpieces for years to come. But they're too cheap and want to act like they're a poor, shitty franchise to do that. I hope he does extremely well. For the Mets, I hope he can get a contract extension there and get paid and do everything that he wants to do up there because he's a great guy, um, a great ball player. Looking at what the Indians got back, um, a lot of prospects and then an everyday starting shortstop. I'm blanking on his name right now, but um, he's still very young. I was reading some synopsises about him from this past year. Again, like I said, very young, but in the six-game season was productive. Um, showed some signs of being a great defender. The bat wasn't all that great, but I think that can come with years in the league. And what is extremely frustrating and the precedent that the Indians have established, that if this guy, excuse me, if this guy, um, the new shortstop, does become good, and because he's so young, he's still on a shorter, smaller contract, 
there's no chance the Indians are going to go out and try and re-sign him. They'll just let him go to a bigger market team and have his prime years while the Indians spent all this time developing him and getting him better. And the Indians have a great developmental system, a good farm system. You can see guys like Bieber and... Plesak, um, McKenzie, the pitcher. I know those are all three pitchers, but Lindor came through there. Jose Ramirez came through there. A lot of guys have come through our farm system and have done good, but they come through our farm system. We continue to develop and grow them while they're in the majors, and then when it's time to pay them and their contract comes out, they just go to a bigger city and a bigger team because we're unwilling to pay them. So it's literally like we are farm systems for the New Yorks of the world, the Dodgers of the world, the Cubs. It's infuriating that the Indians decide to act like they are poor when there are tons of money to be made. The Indians right now, the whole roster, their payroll is $40 million. You cannot justify to the players to Tito, and especially to the fans, that, hey, we're really trying to compete to win here. And I get that the Rays did that last year, and they almost won the World Series before a poor decision with Blake Snell to pull him. But you look time in and time out, teams with middle to larger payrolls like the Dodgers who have been there consistently. The Red Sox, I understand they're having a couple bad years, but more than likely, they're pretty consistent. The Yankees, they always seem to find themselves in the playoffs. The Cubs, it's so infuriating trying to sell all these people for the Indians that, hey, we're only going to pay guys $40 million. Good luck. There's just no way to justify it. So... Hopefully that encompasses my feelings and thoughts on the Lindor trade. Again, I wish nothing but future and continued success for Francisco Lindor, one of my favorite Indians players of all time. The final question of this week's sacks comes from Zach Berger who asks, should the way the NFL handles targeting change after the way the game-changing play on Higgins? So if you were living under a rock, the Cleveland Browns, made it to the divisional round of the AFC playoffs. In the divisional round, they ended up losing to the defending Super Bowl champions, Kansas City Chiefs, after having a chance to win the game late in the fourth quarter. That's That should be... That needs to be let off. Your same old Browns. The Browns is the Browns. They were... A couple bad breaks away, one drive away from going to the AFC Championship game and beating Patrick Mahomes for three and a half quarters and going and advancing to the AFC Championship game in the playoffs. But the big play that everybody was talking about after the fact was in the second quarter, pretty close to halftime, the Browns, Baker Mayfield throws the ball to Rashad Higgins Gets it around the 10 and 5 yard line. When he gets near the end zone by the pylon, he reaches out. He drops the ball and the ball goes out of bounds into the back of the end zone, which is a touchback. Upon further review, looking at the um, play that happened, it became pretty apparent that there was targeting by the Kansas City Chiefs player and that didn't get called. I think that I it's hard to really do something and make in a big change like that where I'm 
pretty confident right now that the NFL allows you to challenge things like that. If they don't, the only change they can make is that you could challenge that. And I don't know if they're willing to do something like that where if it's not called on the field, then you can challenge if it was or was not. Because in the play this past weekend, it wasn't called on the field. And only after the fact, when you saw a bunch of replays, then it became obvious like, hey, this was leading with the helmet, maybe targeting. I think in real time, in like bang-bang plays like that, if it's not called on the field, it's really kind of chicken shit but I understand why you would want to be able to go and get that call right but I think that just opens up a ton of floodgates to be able to say that teams would be able to challenge a penalty that wasn't called if that is the way it was going to go if I was going to change anything I would change the fumble out of the end zone rule I would probably either do like back to the original line of scrimmage Back to, like, say, okay, this is my thought process on that. Say that with this the play on Sunday, the Browns were at the 30-yard line, the ball's fumbled out of the end zone, maybe give it 10 yards or 15 yards or cut it in half to where they get the first down, but they don't make a touchdown, they bring it back a little bit, the Browns keep possession, I get it, like, yes, the ball is fumbled out of the end zone, the Browns did lose the ball, but the Chiefs did nothing to regain that possession. If anything, I think that is the rule that needs to be changed, rather than the targeting rules in the NFL. That does it for the Mail Sack segment on this week's edition of Carson Sack. Thank you again to everyone that sends in questions. You all make that Mail Sack segment possible. Our next segment is a look and preview at the NFL Conference Championship matchups. The first one to talk about is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers going to the Green Bay Packers. These teams have played each other before. Actually, both of these games earlier on in the year, both of these teams have played each other, the Buccaneers and the Packers, and then the Bills and the Chiefs. But we're going to talk about the Packers and the Buccaneers. In the first matchup in Week 6, the Buccaneers were able to pull away from the Packers in that one, 38-10. Looking at some stats from that, Tom Brady, 17 of 27, 166 yards, but was able to throw two touchdowns. The big key to the game that I'm going to stress, and it was able to be done in the first game, but Ronald Jones. 23 carries, 113 yards, and two touchdowns. And this was really the game that Rob Gronkowski um, started to come onto the scene and make his impression felt. He had five receptions, 78 yards, and one touchdown. For the Packers, Aaron Rodgers, 160 yards, two interceptions, was only able to complete 16 of 35 passes. But here's where I think that The Packers have greatly improved the rushing. In that game, Williams, the running back, not even the primary running back, um, was the leading rusher. Four carries for 34 yards. After him, A.J. Dillon, five carries for 31. And then Aaron Jones, 10 carries for 15 yards. It's going to be imperative. Whichever team is going to win this game is going to have to run the ball extremely well. 
Obviously, I think Aaron Rodgers at this stage in his career is a better passer than Tom Brady, but if the run game for the Buccaneers can be like it was in that first game and it can be used for play action, it can be used to help the passing offense for Tom Brady and open things up and make easier throws where he's not having to force the ball downfield, then it's going to help Tampa Bay immensely. On the opposite end, I really think that the Packers' running game has gotten better each game. Aaron Jones, I think, is one of the most slept-on running backs in the NFL. He doesn't get near enough credit for how good he is and how he's a pass-catching back as well to a certain degree and extent. He can get it done on the ground. I love what Aaron Jones can do. In this game, again, the running's going to be very important, and the defense for both of these teams is going to be very important. The rush defense for the Packers has gotten better, and again, I stress, I continue to stress this. Jared Alexander is one of the better young corners that is starting to look like a lockdown corner in the NFL. On the opposite side for the Buccaneers, if they can force takeaways like they did in that first game against Green Bay, which I don't know if that's as likely to happen with the Packers playing at home and having film and all this other stuff that they already have from playing the Buccaneers in this first game, and Aaron Rodgers, how mentally sharp and prepared he'll probably be. I'm not sure if those takeaways are going to come at such a high rate that they did in the first game. Um. Interested to see how the bringing back of Vitavea for the Buccaneers is going to impact the run game for the Packers. A big body in the middle that is disruptive for the Buccaneers to pair with Indomitian Sue and the rest of that front seven. If Devontae Adams for the Packers is able to impact and affect the game um, in any way, I think it could be a bit of a long day for the Buccaneers. Um, I'm going to, unfortunately... And I I do not like Aaron Rodgers, but I think going to Lambeau Field and the mojo and the momentum that the Packers have right now, and I just think Aaron Rodgers at this stage in his career is better than what Tom Brady is at his sta- at the stage of the career he's in. I I know you can't count out Tom Brady, and I know he's going to come in mentally prepared, and they're going to hopefully have a pretty decent game plan. From what you've heard, Bruce Arians has sort of let the reins back a little bit and is letting Tom have a much bigger influence on the game plan and the offensive play calls, which in turn has resulted in this run for the Buccaneers. Oh, this is tough. Like I said, I'm ultimately, I'm real tempted to take Green Bay. It's only a three-point spread. I'm going to take Green Bay. I think the defense shows up for Green Bay. I think Aaron Jones has a monster game, and I think the Packers do end up beating the Buccaneers. The next game in the AFC, it's the Bills going to the Chiefs. This game has previously already happened as well, looking back. <clears throat> excuse me, at that first game, the Chiefs were able to win 26-17. to Patrick Mahomes had a very decent game by his standards, a pretty good game by a lot of quarterback standards, but 21 of 26, 225 yards and two touchdowns. Josh Allen for the Bills, 122 yards, two touchdowns, did throw one interception. Josh Allen was a leading rusher for the Bills that game. Clyde Edwards, Alaire, 
26 carries, 161 yards, and Diggs was the leading receiver for the Bills with 46 yards and one touchdown, and Robinson was the leading receiver for the Chiefs with five receptions and 69 yards. But the big thing in that, Travis Kelsey had five receptions. Two of them went for touchdowns. Tyreek Hill was limited, only three catches for 20 yards. Um, On the Bills' side, um, as I mentioned, Diggs was leading receiver. Beasley was second in receptions for 45 yards and four catches. Again, I hate to absolutely stress that this is all on the running game, but whoever, whichever team is going to be able to run the ball effectively and move the move the chains and have some backbreaking runs at times is going to be who wins this game. There was a lot you saw last week when the Chiefs beat the Browns. Um, Williams and Bell were popping off 8 to 10 yard gains sometimes at will and that really affected um, the game against the Browns and it helped Patrick Mahomes. I'm going to talk a little bit about Patrick Mahomes when it gets to that, but if Alaire can come back and be a shell of what he was against the the Bills earlier this year, I don't think he's going to get the same volume of 26 carries, but I could definitely see the Chiefs deciding to try and run the ball and impose their will, especially if Patrick Mahomes is still dealing with that foot injury and also the concussion protocol thing. I don't think there's a chance in hell Patrick Mahomes doesn't play this weekend. There's Whether he's actually has a concussion or it's a neck injury, as previously reported, I don't know. I'm not going to speculate about all that. I'm just saying I think doctors maybe, I'm not going to insinuate that they're going to just pass him through because they need to for the Chiefs to win, but I sort of am insinuating that. I think... The Chiefs are not going to be with Patrick without Patrick Mahomes in this game. Both of these offenses are going to get theirs. It's going to be what defense decides to step up. Ultimately, you look back what the Bills were able to do against the Ravens this past week. Really stifle the run game, force Lamar Jackson to throw the ball. That's where there was some trouble. Looking at the first drive for the Ravens that they had in that game, they were moving the ball and running the ball however they wanted wherever they wanted then the bills make some adjustments they slow that down they get the one interception in the red zone of Lamar's career that ends up being a hundred yard pick six it's going to be interesting to see if that same defense can show up against a more talented passer I'm for the Chiefs I'm more sold on their defense than what the Bills defense is the Chiefs last week were able to hold a talented Browns offense. Uh, this is not me being a homer for the Browns, but Baker Mayfield, 30 touchdowns on the year. Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt, Jarvis Landry, uh, Hooper, David Njoku, a lot, a multitude of guys that can affect games. They were able until about the middle third of, of the third quarter, the Chiefs were able to hold the Browns to only three points. And I'm not saying that what the Bills did against the Ravens, who has an explosive offense as well, mostly through the run game, isn't impressive. But I think the Chiefs' defense deserves a little bit more credit, and I think they have the best defensive player in this game in Tyron Matthew. I cannot begin to stress his importance for what that Chiefs' defense does. He is always around the ball, always making plays, is a ball hawk in coverage when he needs to be, 
is always helping in the run game. I cannot stress how important he is as a football player and how good of a football player he is. Ultimately, it I really did think about taking the team that didn't win the first matchup in both of these games. I was thinking about taking the Packers and the Bills, which would be a great Super Bowl. I do not get me wrong, but I ultimately think that the run game and how they will devise a plan with Andy Reid and Biennemi to use the run game and maybe not in the most traditional sense and Travis Kelsey being a matchup nightmare for the Bills. We've already seen previously he's going to have success. He's probably going to have success again this game as well. I don't expect Tyreek Hill to be limited as well. Maybe they get him involved in the running game a little bit like they have later on in the second half of the year with jet sweeps and using him out of the backfield. And again, Patrick Mahomes is going to be healthy. I He's going to be cleared. I don't know if he's going to be healthy, but I still think I'll take an injured Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid and Tyron Matthew and a very disrespected defense of the Chiefs against the Bills. And the Bills' offense with Josh Allen has been great. They lose Zach Moss, so now they're relying on Devin Singletary, who I like him, but his production hasn't been what it should be. So are they going to allow Josh Allen to just try and throw and run everywhere? That can be dangerous because I know Josh obviously is a bigger guy, but things happen, maybe a helmet-to-helmet on accident or something, and Josh Allen is out, and then where do you go? then there's a lot of questions there. I'm not asking or implying or wanting Josh Allen to be hurt. I'm just saying those are the risks that come with using him and having him be your leading rusher. So ultimately, I take the Chiefs over the Bills in the AFC Championship game. And hopefully, Patrick Mahomes, regardless of injuries, is able to have a big game and propel them to a win. It's interesting to see, though, Maybe this bites them in the the Chiefs in the ass because they've been playing with fire for so many weeks now where they've let teams that shouldn't be in games hang around. And the Bills certainly have every right to be in this game. And if they find themselves close or if they find themselves up to a big lead, I'm not 100% sure the Chiefs can find their way back and work themselves down and come back from a big hole. Or if they just let them hang around and don't, put them out, and keep their foot on the necks when they should and need to, and the Bills find their way back in, that certainly wouldn't surprise me either. But ultimately, the Chiefs win this game and make their way to the Super Bowl for the second year in a row. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, there were two little notes that I wanted to talk about going on around in the NFL world today. First off, Dwayne Haskins signs with the Pittsburgh Steelers. I shared my thoughts on this on Twitter. Follow me at Carson Karras. If you can't find that, you can search Car Daddy Fresh, all individual words, and it should come up. But my thoughts were if the Steelers are bringing in Dwayne Haskins to compete for the starting job right away from day one, then yeah, the situation might get a little bit messy. If they're bringing him in and Ben has one more year, God forbid he has two more years, but one more year. Dwayne can sort of hit reset this offseason, get himself in a better mindset, better just place mentally. He can take this year, regroup, learn from Ben. They're both big guys. I think they can both play about the same. 
I think Dwayne is he's mobile and can be a guy like Ben that can be hard to take down and can move around in the pocket when he needs to. He didn't get a lot of opportunities to show that in Washington because when he was getting moving around the pocket, it was basically just sacked or he would take off a little bit too soon. Ultimately, if if the plan is we're going to give Dwayne some time, we're going to assess him in a year or two and see how he does, more than likely a year because Ben has one more year in him, then I am cautiously optimistic for Dwayne Haskins because this receiving core is better than what he had in Washington. This offensive line is better than what he would have had in Washington. The organization, the coach, everything I think is better than what he had in Washington. And if the Steelers can believe and show that they believe and trust Dwayne Haskins, which I think at times severely lacked in Washington for him, and I think that messed with his psyche as well, that I think Dwayne has a chance to have, even though he's been in the NFL for only two years, a career resurrection and resurgence in Pittsburgh. Now, the other point and other story I want to talk about is the hiring of Dan Campbell from the Saints to be the head coach by the Detroit Lions. If you have not heard his introductory press conference today, I highly advise you to go out and seek it and try and find it. It is, uh, it's something. Now, Dan Campbell's had a head coaching stint in the NFL before. He was an intern coach for the Dolphins, and he brought this same um, underdog mentality that he's going to bring to the Detroit Lions. This no-nonsense, this fight-hard-intensity type attitude that the Dolphins, while he was there, their players loved it. They finished 5-7 and seven in his tenure, I believe, while he was an intern coach. He got to interview for the job, but the Dolphins ultimately ended, ended up hiring Adam Gase. How the fuck did that work out for you? But the players really enjoyed that. He had that same type of fiery, passionate coaching that he did um, in Miami. He brought that to the Saints, and now he's going to bring that to the Detroit Lions. This can work, but I don't know how... My immediate reaction is like a Brian Flores type or a Joe Judge guy in New York, but maybe turned up to like 11 is the attitude and stuff he's putting out there. You saw with the Giants, when they bought into Joe Judge's no-nonsense system and all this stuff, they were able to turn this year around and had a chance to make the playoffs. My big concern is... Do the Lions have anybody or a group of veterans or leaders or young guys on that team right now that are going to go in and buy into this guy's system and way of coaching and being coached hard and all this other stuff? If they do, they have a chance. I think if Matthew Stafford is still around, I think he'll buy in. Jeff Okuda, I think he's got a chance to be a defensive leader for that team and really buy into this system. DeAndre Swift, I don't know if he's going to buy into the system, but if he can get some big-name guys like that and then he can get some veterans on that team to really buy into what he's trying to do, then I have full confidence that the Lions can be competent and competitive in the NFC North and the NFC playoff picture for years to come. 
If they do not, if he cannot get his players to buy into that, then this is just going to be a big waste of time. He's going to be a great soundbite, a great press conference, a great interview, but ultimately he's going to be a shitty coach. Because if your guys aren't going to buy into your hard-ass system, then they're just not going to perform for you on the field. I'm excited to see how it turns out. I'm going to give them at least a year or two to try and implement that system and get guys in there through free agency, the draft, and things like that that are willing to do what he wants to do and compete as hard as he wants them to compete. But if they do not, this thing is going to get ugly quickly for the Detroit Lions. That is going to do it for the NFL talk for this edition of the Carson Sack podcast where we talk balls. Now, the last segment, I am going to recap and talk a little bit about part two of the Tiger Woods documentary. If you want to hear my thoughts on part one, that is in last week's episode. I highly advise you to check that out. There's going to be some spoilers, so spoiler alert. If you have not seen part two yet, go out of your way and watch that. Stop this podcast right now. Watch it and come back and listen. Um, A big thing that was stressed last week and I'm going to stress this week is I didn't learn a ton of new information that I didn't previously learn from reading the Tiger Woods book just called Tiger Woods by Armin Catan and another author again like last week this week I highly advise you if you like golf at all if you're into Tiger Woods go out of your way it's a big book but it's a great read this This episode, part two, mainly focused on the scandal, the sex scandal that Tiger Woods was having um, during his marriage. They touched briefly at the end about the painkillers and the DUI and that bit of addiction that he had. And then they end it with his triumphant return to the top with him winning the Masters. There's been new light and new information this week regarding Tiger Woods where he has undergone a fifth back surgery. He's going to miss two scheduled starts. Hopefully he can be back in time for the Masters. Speaking of the Masters, the big thing that I took away from this episode, which I certainly didn't remember, but a couple things about the scandal. Number one, it's on my birthday, the day the news broke, November 27th, when the report of Tiger Woods crashing his car and everything happened. And when that happened, I was still, I was young. I was turning 13 that day. So I was old enough to understand the situation, but it didn't, I certainly, if that were to happen today, I would look and think about it much differently, obviously now as a 24-year-old rather than a 13-year-old. But, little fun note, it happened on my birthday. What I didn't remember, and the documentary does a really good job about, and really, from Bryant Gumble, his response to it, and I didn't remember this happening, but when Tiger made his return to the Masters, and I was fortunate enough to be there that year when he made his return to the Masters, and again, I'm 13 at the time, so I'm not, I'm not as appreciative of going to the Masters as I would be now, and I'm not taking everything in as much as I would now if I were to go, but still, extremely glad I got to go. What I recall from going there obviously everybody wanted to see how he was going to perform and return and everything he ends up finishing fourth that year which given that's the first tournament he plays in however many months and all the scandal and the mental fatigue and everything that has to go on to him it's incredible that he was able to finish fourth 
But pre-tournament, what they brought up in the documentary and what Brian Gumble had very strong opinion on was Billy Payne, one of, I forget exactly his title at Augusta and with the Masters and everything, but I think he's the president or something like that. Um, they go out and they chastise and they admonish and they really go after Tiger Woods pretty hard. And they say how this is a dark moment and a down spot and all this stuff for the Masters. And they really criticize everything Tiger and they take him and rake him over the coals. Brian Gumble replies and says how unfair and how bullshit that was. Again, as a 13-year-old, I really don't remember that happening with the um, pre-Masters week and everything like that. But looking at it now, that is such bullshit that they felt they had to have this higher, holy, moral ground over Tiger Woods when Augusta and the Masters are, previous years, just recently... They didn't let um, black members and women members and women in the clubhouse and so much other just bullshit stuff that it's such a double standard that they felt the need to come out and not bully Tiger, just make any statement at all to chastise him when for so many months that's all it was, that's all Tiger Woods got. I'm not saying they should have come out and supported him and gotten behind him but tiger took some steps he went to rehabs all this other stuff and apologized publicly which in the documentary they talk about that being maybe not the best move a family friend remember states that hey maybe he should have just apologized to elon and kept that a personal thing i get having to do damage control for sponsors and everything why tiger did do it but that's a whole nother thing i just I absolutely hated um, looking back and having Augusta do that. Um, Rachel, you could tell one of Tiger's main mistresses was there as well. You heard her side of the story. And really what Tiger, obviously, yes, he was having relations with the women that he was cheating on his wife with. But what they really stress and they talk about in the book and they reiterate it in the documentary part two is that on top of these sexual relations, it was really just this release for Tiger, where he could feel like being himself, and being childlike, like eating cereal, watching cartoons, talking to someone, and talking to all of these mistresses, and people that he did these things with, and just opening up that, for some reason, I, I don't know why, I highly doubt many people know why, but why Tiger Woods didn't feel comfortable enough doing that with his wife Elin um and he felt he could do that more with these mistresses is beyond me but again that's his thing I think he's done enough publicly to earn and be back in people's graces in good graces he's obviously made a huge colossal mistake in his life and he's at times He's going to, and there's going to be a time when he's going to have to answer for that with his children. And he talked about that in interviews when that first happened. And I think he's going to do the best he can to manage that. I don't know if he's had that conversation with Sam or Charlie yet. I don't know if they're old enough to really grasp things yet. But um, that was a big thing they talked about. Another thing that really pissed me off was no one can pronounce Elon's name right. Um, People were calling her Ellen or Align. Uh, Rachel, you could tell, fucked her name up. 
that really pissed me off. It's Elin. Um, listen, you cheated with her husband. You broke up their marriage. Obviously, yes, some of that responsibility falls on Tiger Woods, but you were a big part of that. Have some fucking respect for the person and learn how to say their name right and call instead of calling her Ellen, call her Elin because that's her real name. Ultimately, my whole review for the documentary, I enjoyed it. Go out of your way to watch it. But until Tiger Woods does hopefully a last stance style documentary and people closer to the situation like Tiger himself, like current playing people like Phil Mickelson, um, just other PGA professionals, maybe like Justin Thomas, who in his later years can talk about how Tigers changed, things like that, then I I was happy, but I was not totally satisfied with the documentary. It was a good two-part, insightful documentary, but until a Last Dance style um, documentary endorsed with Tigers backing and his um, involvement in it is done, then I don't think there can be a real bow tied on to the Tiger Woods saga. And then with the timing of the release, there's really not even a definitive end. Because, again, the last bits they show is him winning the 2019 Masters, and then it's over. And Tiger Woods' career isn't over yet. Obviously, he faces a big hurdle now with this fifth back surgery, but... People have written him off before and said he's done and he's come back. He's won the Tour Championship. He's tied Sam Snead's overall victory record. He's going to break that at some point. I'm a 1,000% sure in that. Does he break Jack Nicklaus's major record? For many years, I've said he has. I'm going to continue and stay and stand by that and say he is going to at some point be able to do that. I think they're going to play too many courses that he's had so much success on in these coming years that if he can get a scheduled tailored to him that he can stay fresh but not become fatigued and he can return to how good he was um, that tour championship year, the Masters year, then I think he has a chance to break Jack's record ultimately. Um, Again, watch the documentary on HBO Max. Definitely worth that 30-day free trial or that week free trial to make um, an account. Go out of your way. Watch it on HBO. So, that is going to do it for episode 81 of Carson Sack Podcast where we talk balls. I'm taking next week off, but I have a jam-packed episode for the Super Bowl preview. Right now, tentatively planned, if they are still into it, I'm going to have Jack Muldoon and Trent Revelette. Good friends of mine wanted to be on the podcast for a very long time. I finally caved in and said, fuck it, fine fellas, you can get on. So they are going to be on with me for a Super Bowl preview, and they are going to be answering your mail sack questions as well. So when I put the story up on my Snapchat and my Instagram, I will make note of that as well, but they will be answering your questions as well. So I hope you all look forward to that. Again, one time before I leave, like, rate, review, subscribe, all of that wherever you get your podcast from. And remember, when you're on Thrive Fantasy Sports app and you sign up, use my promo code SAC, all capitals, S-A-C-K. When you deposit $20, up to $20, they will match your initial deposit. Use it for the 
conference championship games this week in the NFL. Use it for UFC 253, I believe, with Conor McGregor. Use it for the NBA games this weekend. Use it for the Abu Dhabi and the PGA tournaments this week. Use it, use it, use it, because you have to play to win. Sign up and prop up on Thrive Fantasy Sports app or sign up and prop up at thrivefantasysports.com. And as we always end here on the sack, we will be You said forever, now I drive alone past your street.